very special episode of the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this episode of the show, I know that we normally focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, on this episode, we're doing something for Rich's birthday. That's right, Rich. Tell them what they've won. <laughs> Weird Warriors podcast episode 61. Or Sergeant Rock 349. Yes, dear listeners, the time has come for the best of the DC war book titles. Yes, indeed, folks, this is going to be a ride. This is going to be a good one. And I can't freaking wait. <laughs> Happy birthday to me. <laughs> Oh, so where do we, these shows usually start? Retroactive history. That's where these usually start. How about that? This time, we don't have any retroactive history. Nothing new or exciting has happened. What the hell? It's my birthday. There should be some retroactive history, but there isn't. Oh, well, anyway, Intel report. A different kind of Intel report, as you shall see. Alan Moore's Cinema Purgatorio was an 18-issue black-and-white miniseries by Avatar Press that ran from April 2016 to April 2019. There were four separate eight-page stories in each issue that ran the length of the series. I will pause here to remark one of them, Code Prue, was a continuation of a two-part mini Garth Ennis wrote the year before. Think EMTs working with vampires, zombies, werewolves, etc. in everyday life in New York City's underworld and you get the idea. It's Ennis. It's awesome. Read that too. The story arc I specifically call to your attention here is A More Perfect Union, written by Max Brooks of World War Z fame, art by Michael Tepescale. Gettysburg, 1863, a battle that will determine the fate of the country is looming, with one key difference. The Civil War is not being fought. Generals Lee, Stewart, Longstreet, and the like are all still loyal federal soldiers. The enemy is an army the likes of which has never been seen before. Marauding ants the size of elephants. Can the Union find new weapons to stop the behemoths before it's too late? All four stories end with a cliffhanger-esque end of Act 1, but to the best of my research, there never was an Act 2. This is about the same time Uber went away, also by Avatar, so that probably wasn't a coincidence. Too bad. Like Uber, I don't know why I wasn't picking this up at the time. Garth Innes alone should have been enough for Pete's sake. Yeah, I mean, it could have just been visibility. Avatar is not that huge a publisher, even to this day, and I think funding falls through a lot for series like that, or the attention span of the creators who find a better paying job. <laughs> all that speculation aside, we're going to let you all go hunt down what exists of those series and issues Rich was talking about. We'll take a little break for you to listen to an ad for another fine piece of podcast entertainment. And when we get back, we'll take a look at the series and the issue at hand. You have accessed the Supervisory Tactical Organization for Regulation of Metahumans. File 3C. Amazona, also known as Mighty Woman. There is apparently a hidden civilization deep in the Antarctic, a portion of that most inhospitable continent on Earth that is hostile to even the bravest of explorers. Amazona comes from this civilization, inspired by reports of the Owl and Atoman to venture into our world and help protect it. Even though the media sometimes call her the Mighty Woman, those like me who work side by side with her know her by that one name. She is regal, courageous, fierce, and guarded. She has shared very little of her life or information about her nation of Yamara with others, not even her fellow paragons. This results in a woman who is a born warrior, a staunch ally, and a fierce protector, who I still have problems trusting. Paragons of Earth is an upcoming comic book project written by Thomas DJ and Percival Constantine, 
with pencils by Eric Johns and inks, colors, and letters by Constantine. The crowdfunding campaign features some great incentives, including exclusive pinups by Johns, Chris Kempe, and others, and the chance to get original artwork. Please go to crowdfunder.com slash paragonscomic, all one word, for more details and to sign up. Paragons of Earth. They have powers undreamt of and enemies unplanned for. And we're back. So as I mentioned before the break, Rich is going to give you a little history about the title, the series that we're taking a look at this time, which is a doozy, and then roll us right into the cover detail for this issue. Title details. Our Army at War ran from August 1952 to issue 301 in February 1977. From there, it was renamed Sergeant Rock at issue 302 and ran to issue 422 in July 1988. I have them all, except for issue one, and that's not going to be a cheap or easy get. It's about a long box and a half of just Our Army at War in the basement, folks. Uh, Sergeant Rock's first official appearance was in Our Army at War 83 from June 1959, created by Robert Conagher and Joe Kubert. Signatures? Oh, I'll give you signatures. I have various issues signed by Joe Giella, Carmen Infantino, Erwin Hazen, Sam Glantz, Russ Heath, Dick Ayers, Al Milgram, and Joe, Adam, and Andy Kubert. Yes, including issue 83. Check the album. Cover detail. Art. Come on, you know who did the art. I said his name twice already. 50 cents. The all-caps Sergeant Rock title is white on a blue background on an orange sky. The period behind Sergeant is a Master Sergeant rank. In the background of the cover, Bulldozer is on his knees. A little sure shot is trying to help him up. Rock is helmetless, a bandage around his head and clutching his left arm. Two other Easy Joes are struggling through the dust. In the foreground, an arm from off panel holds up a goofy, freckled ventriloquist's dummy that's wearing a tattered U.S. uniform, bullet casings at his feet. It calls out to Easy, get up and fight, you dummies! Along the top of the title reads, Easy Co's newest replacement, The Dummy. Cover date, February 1981. I can't find a date of release. No Killjoy, comments and commendations. Where to start? Where else? The Dummy. This cover lunges off the stands, grabs you by the throat, and chokes you out. The wide-eyed, open-mouthed spectacle of the dummy is on full display and the masterful way Kubert portrays the dummy's stance, with one leg locked out at a 45-degree angle while the other is buckled at an unnatural angle at the knee, is just what one of these dolls would look like. The exhaustion portrayed by Easy is a great touch, too. I don't care if you've never bought a war comic in your life. If you see this one on the rack, you're at the very least flipping through it to see what the hell is going on here. Pretty sure that would have happened to me if I'd caught this one on the rack at the time. Like you said, the cover absolutely catches the eye and pins it right down. There's no way you're just walking by this one if you see it. That's partially due to the coloring choices alone. The red to pink background, the yellow lettering up top, and the white lettering of the series logo against its bold blue background are enough. Even before you get to the dark green uniform of the dummy in the foreground. And yes, speaking of the titular dummy, he is creepy as all get out, like Alfred E. Newman going to war as Cheeks the Toy Wonder. And we'll get back to that later, folks. But OK, I have some nitpicks now that I've made my way to the actual drawing. Give me a break here. Just one just one nitpick. But to me, it's a decent sized one. The sameness of the colors on most of the figures almost keeps you from seeing the hand that's holding the dummy upright at first glance. It kind of gets lost in the sea of similar flesh tones and green uniform colors. The effect creates a kind of tangent, leaving you unsure of how far the dummy is away from Easy Company in the background. Is the dummy a giant? 
Hard to tell at first, and it shouldn't be. This is Joe Hubert, dang it. That being said, again, nitpick, not a big deal, but I couldn't leave it alone. <laughs> that being said, this would still go down as a favorite cover of mine overall for its sheer strangeness, its captivating design, and as Rich mentioned, the high quality body language and acting of all of the excellently rendered figures of Easy Company themselves. And one thing I didn't put in the script, this has always been one of my favorite logos of any comic title ever, the Sergeant Rock logo. It kind of looks like a license plate. The, uh, the lettering is kind of just block lettering. There seems to be nothing special about it when you pick it apart, but on its own, on the cover of a comic, it just jumps right out at you. I've always really thought it was incredibly aesthetically cool. So just had to say that. It just gets points alone for me remembering. I've always thought that logo was one of DC's best. So there you have it, folks. We've run roughshod over the cover for Rich's birthday. And uh, you know what? I think I think I'm going to let Rich start off with the first story in this issue, what whatever could it be? The Dummy, 12 pages. Script by Robert Conagher, art by Frank Redondo. It's the cover story. Form, Sergeant, Charlie Company. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Okay, okay, okay. All right, I'm Rock, Easy's top kick. The new replacement picked a lousy time to join Easy. We'd been bounced around on the line for so long that we weren't ready for jokes or fun and games. Me and Easy lost track of how many times the enemy came on. We kept firing until our fingers stiffened on the triggers. Our eyes got bleary, firing through the acid smoke. But the enemy couldn't be stopped. After a merciless round of hand-to-hand -hand fighting, we held. Easy walked away from the fight, bleeding and aching from every pore. A truck came to carry Easy back to R&R. Good thing we were relieved before we began fighting each other. But almost immediately, we were stopped by an officer in a jeep. Sorry, Rock. You and your guys got to go back. The enemy's mounting another counterattack. Worse, we had to walk back. And that was when the new guy joined us. A freckled blonde carrying a BAR in one hand and a uniformed ventriloquist dummy in the other, sporting a jeep cap and monocle. The dummy started with the jokes right away. Hey, this can't be easy. You guys look more tired than the 4Fs back home. Gotta admit, I was kind of surprised at Easy's reaction. Bulldozer grinned and crouched down to talk to the dummy. Hey, we got a real replacement this time. What's a nice dummy like you doing in a place like this? Dummy, look who is calling who a dummy. Easy burst into laughter as Bulldozer stood up in surprise and scratched his head. Dummy was the perfect safety valve for Easy. Hey, soldier, I said. Can you handle that BAR like you do your wooden friend? Sure he can, Sarge. Anyway, from the looks of it, he won't do much worse than the guys you got behind you now. Buzzard straight from the road, scratch for cover, I bellowed. Easy scattered as an enemy vulture dove on us, but the replacement didn't bat an eye. He and the dummy stood fast, trading fire with the stuka until he blasted it from the sky. Lying on the ground, I was surprised. The dummy had put his BAR where his mouth is. The dummy didn't stop poking fun at Easy. He started talking to the kid, holding them like they were two separate people. Good thing I'm around to keep you from losing your dog tags, Mickey. As the Easy Joes ran up to congratulate Mickey, the dummy acted insulted. <laughs> I do all the work and this dummy here gets decorated. There ain't no justice. As Easy formed up and moved out past the flaming wreck, the dummy tried to put me at ease. Stop sweating, Sarge. You and Easy will be okay. I'm covering you. A little while later, me and Easy were off the road in the woods, taking 10. Bulldozer and the dummy were trading verbal jabs when my combat antenna buzzed me. I whirled and knocked down a treetop crowd about to drop a potato masher on us. I wouldn't have wasted so much lead for one measly sniper. You're slipping, Sarge. Easy leapfrogged Abel and Baker Coes and took position in front of the river. Walking by the lieutenant, the dummy cracked, when they let you out of the nursery shave tail. I quickly covered the dumbest mouth and sheepishly explained to the LT that he was just kidding around. I ordered Easy to dig staggered foxholes by the river so every man had a clear line of fire. I told Mickey to dig in closest to the water and to knock off jokes with officers. As Mickey started digging, the dummy kept talking. Dig that foxhole deep, dummy, and leave the fighting to me. How'd they let you out here for, I inquired. Same as you, dummy. 
wearing those pop bottle bottoms for glasses. I'm surprised they even let you in the army. Easy had just finished digging when I heard the first enemy shells heading in and I dove for cover with bulldozer. The shelling and darkness hit us at the same time. The shelling never stopped. It was white hot like the blast furnaces of the steel mills. The enemy will be crossing under cover of the barrage while we're pinned here. Yeah, and the new BAR man will catch first. Can't do anything for the new guy. All we can do is sit and wait for the barrage to lift. The enemy was crossing the river, wave after wave, firing and tossing potato mashers ahead of them. Only one man lay between them and the rest of Easy. The BAR hammered back all night. The dummy propped up in Mickey's arms, watching. At dawn, I led Easy through the mist coming up from the river. The river was choked with enemy dead, right up to the BAR position. The dummy was slumped in Mickey's arms, and Mickey was slumped over his weapon, his helmet ripped open by a bullet. He stopped him, just him and his dummy. We buried Mickey by the river, his BAR jammed muzzle first in the sand and his helmet hanging from the stock. We left the dummy in Mickey's helmet, and I could have swore I saw a tear running down the dummy's cheek as we moved out. Killjoy. I really hate Killjoy Rock, but if I did it for Juana Tang and the Losers, I can't play favorites. Page four, panel two. One truck comes to pick up Easy. A company is generally about 120 men. Did Easy take that many casualties? Yeah, I know. We're used to seeing the same dozen or so guys in these books, so I get it. But it's not that hard to slightly tweak the language. Some trucks. See? Easy. See what I did there? Ah! I've mentioned this before in other episodes, but it's hard to shoot down an enemy plane with ground fire with infantry weapons, page 6, panel 4. Sure, it happened, but not that often. You were usually doing it just to feel better, and if you did hit him, he almost never exploded. He usually crashed if he had tagged the engine of the pilot. But lastly, the major tactical error that Rock makes, putting the new guy in an exposed position by himself. The dummy notwithstanding, Mickey should have at least had a buddy with him to provide cover fire with a rifle whenever he needed to reload, which would have been often. BAR guys had low life expectancies because the enemy was always searching out the guy with the light machine gun. The Browning automatic rifle typically carried a 20-round detachable magazine and infantry rolls. 20 rounds of 30-06, same caliber as the M1. That's it. A World War I holdover that served throughout World War II and into Korea. And for the record, I have fired one. I fired a Tommy gun like Rock too, but we're here for the BAR. As the joke went back in the day, three men walk into a bar. <laughs> Comments and combinations. As a side note, the dummy returned in Rock 376. So if you like this one, you have to go read the sequel. No spoilers here. Did everyone notice that the replacement himself never said a word? It was always the dummy talking. Did everyone notice the dummy was a PFC and Mickey was only a private? So the dummy outranked him. I immediately decided to write the whole script in rock speak, which made it fun and easier than I would have thought. Fallout for the callouts. Pages two and three, the cross panel page five, panel five of the murderous hand to hand. Rifle butt swinging, knives being parried, etc. Page five, panel four, bewildered bulldozer put in his place by the dummy as easy laughs at a, is a lighthearted moment. Page 10, panels 5 through 7, the silhouetted sequences of easy under an artillery barrage, which actually brings up a side kill joint. All those guys should be hunkered down in their holes. Shrapnel to the head is a real fast way to check out. And pretty much all the last page, Rock leading easy through the mist, discovering Mickey, and paying their respects at his grave. All right, first of all, you finally got to do some voice acting as Sergeant Rock, so... Happy birthday to yourself, from yourself. It's the best way to do it. And good job, man. Uh, I love that. I love the dummy voice. But back to the comic itself. This, this was an excellent little story. The theme of using antagonistic humor to let off steam in times of high tension or stress is played out really well in the narrative, as is the fact that less stressed people might not be ready for that kind of thing, like the uptight shave tail lieutenant on page nine of course this is a bob conniger joint so that's all gotten across in the midst of wall-to-wall -wall action and terse tough guy talking dialogue soldiers really this is one of the best examples of conniger and his team firing on all cylinders together that i can think of 
from the page layouts to the framing of the drawings within each panel to the choices of colors and sound effects, which you know I love. It all just comes together more or less seamlessly to get Conagher's story across. There is not an ounce of drag on this thing. Callouts for me? Why? I'll start with a nitpick, of course. Page one, panel one, Rock's left eye is a little bit long, isn't it there, Redondo? And panel two, is it just me, or does that dynamite dummy look a lot like Jimmy J.J. Walker from Good Time? Rich mentioned the amazing double splash on pages two to three already, but god damn, that is one hell of a kick-ass freaking double page spread. I say it again, god damn. Particular props to Tatiana Wood for the coloring on those pages, too. Throughout page five, Redondo's framing of the camera from panel to panel carries you through an entire page of nothing but people and dummies, you figure out which is which, talking in style, keeping it visually interesting and easy to follow at the same time. On panel three of that page, does the dummy now look more like Charles Nelson Riley? Newman, Walker, Riley, three comedy greats in one. On page six, panel four, I love that the newbie doesn't even drop the dummy while he's shooting a plane out of the sky with the very heavy-looking browning. We get a mention of Sergeant Rock's combat antenna, right? And which we were given, he was given a couple of APs of danger sense for that in Mayfair's classic DC Heroes RPG, by the way. So bonus nerd points on the side. All right. <laughs> Have to get that in there for my role-playing game people. But the combat antenna actually made its way into his stats in the game. And on page nine, I had to look up the meaning of the derogatory term shave tail, which I guess, was commonly used for newly commissioned officer or a newly broken impact mule. So I'd heard the term before, but I never actually looked up what it really meant. So again, I did a little research. I looked up a word. I'm very proud of myself. I'm, I'm, I'm cleaning myself up for Rich's birthday episode here. Okay, and fine. Here's one more, all right? On page 10, panels 5 to 7, I really like the look of what Rich just criticized, the whack-a-mole with foxholes that Redondo had going on. This story rocked. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. All right, so first story's over. We're going to take a little break and wander over to take 10, which is the letters page for the Sergeant Rock series. And I'm going to let Rich tell you a little something about it at the top here. There is a helmetless rock in, done by Joe Kubert in a tattered uniform who stands holding a few open letters, smiling and looking out at the reader. Conacher often answers the letters as if he's rock. At the very end of the letters page is a word search battle puzzle from Robin Snyder. The most dangerous man in the world presents Bob Conagher's pet of war. Iron Major is the first name you see. The quick skim also uncover Boltonoff, Ice Cream Soldier, Zack, Haunted Tank, MMA Marie, Wild Man, Shaken, Little Sure Shot, and Jeb Stewart. No doubt there's more. Check the album. And in case any of you didn't know, taking 10 is slang for taking a 10-minute break. Even I knew that one. Ha-ha! So I picked out a letter here, special for Rich, really which I call A Killjoy Gets His Comeuppance. And it starts out like this. Dear Bob, in Rock number 335, the German commander calls Rock a Feldwebel, a Feldwebel, calls Rock a Feldwebel. A Feldwebel, I'm not pronouncing that right, and you can get in line and sue me, is a flight sergeant. What about the German commander's scarf in panel six, page five? It's gone in panel one, page six. Then it's back on again in panel four, same page. Then it's gone again in panel, on panel one, page 11. But worse, on page six, panel three, Rock takes off his ammo belts. In panel five, on the same page, he has them on again. Page seven, panel one, he still has them on. Then they're gone again. Whatever happened to the German commander after Rock gave him a drink in panel two, page 11? Also... Why were the German uniforms purple? The German Africa Corps are in the desert and their uniforms are tan. But I still love Sergeant Rock comics. That comes from Chris Schaefer or Rich Fulham with the Time Machine, 1007 Georgia Ave, Norfolk, Nebraska, 68701. And 
the editorial response here uh, by Conagher or Conagher channeling Sergeant Rock is, Dear Chris, the loud noise you hear is my pulling the pin on a grenade. So there you go. You get, you get, you get your come up and stuff. Okay, my letter. David Hill from New Brunswick, Canada. To whom it may concern. I'm new at this subscribing biz, so please help me sort it out. I live in Canada, the place that freed your hostages, you know, and I don't want you to think I want any favors. Dig. Now, for the subscription part, can you please start me off with Sergeant Rock issue 339, April? Because I have number 338, March, no escape from the front. And as I said, 115 Robin Hood Lane, Dondola Point, Rothesay, New Brunswick, Canada. And the response is, Dear David, All-America cheers the Canadian Embassy's rescue of some of the American hostages in Iran as a heroic act we will always remember. And thanks, I might go back to ski from the top of Mont Blanc, or I felt like a chip whirling in a snowy roulette table once I get my shaking skis together. I have fond memories of Canadian hospitality driving through Canada, from Montreal to the Gaspé Peninsula, New Brunswick to keep Britain Island. I'll pass your request along to the subscription department first chance I get. And personally, I'm like, yeah, watch the 2012 movie Argo for Hollywood's take on the Iranian hostage crisis. I could do a history minute on that, but we all know how to Google it. I remember as a kid watching the ticker every night on the news for how many days the hostages had been in captivity. 444 overall, released in January of 1981, right before Ronald Reagan assumed the presidency. Cover date of this mag is February 1981, so this was still recent news. So yeah, so I, I just I had to pick that just for the hostage, you know, nod in the letters department. That was just too cool to ignore. Oh yeah, and and was Argo the movie where they sort of worked in a fictionalized version of uh, how Jack Kirby helped them, like pose as people working on a movie, and like he did art like storyboards for a fake movie they were going to film, so that they could get behind enemy lines, they could get into the country. And I think they hired Kirby to do art for an imaginary movie called like Lords of Light or something. I I saw one time uh, I'm five sure years ago or something like that. I, I'm pretty I don't sure remember. that was it. I'm going to leave it in the episode and see if people shoot me down. But this is a Kirby factoid, so I'm pretty sure I'm right. So anyway, while I wait to be stricken down for that, I will take us into the second story in this issue. Yes. Sergeant Rock is an anthology title, just like Weird War Tales, people. And this story is called Sing for Your Supper. It's five pages long. Script is by Bill Kelly, and art is by the Joe Kubert School, the Institute itself. <laughs> Synopsis for this uh, team effort goes a little something like this. Autumn, 1941. Two German soldiers outside a cabaret in Nazi-held France, operating on a tip, mow down three resistance fighters in an alley. Inside the cabaret, the lilting tones of another French voice drowns out the harsh sound of gunfire. Marcel Duvalier is in rare form tonight. A world-famous singer, he cooperated with the Nazis. Collaborating meant keeping his life and his wealth which meant more to him than, well, anything. One night in his dressing room, he is startled by a knock at the door. It's his son, Paul. He needed help. He had married Jean that night, but it was no longer safe for them to be there. They needed to leave France. The elder Duvalier was friendly with the Nazis. He could help. Can I? He sneers. The Nazis would not be friendly very long if they knew my son was a traitor. Married to a Jew, I reject you both. Furious, Paul turns to leave. Very well, father, but you are the traitor. Adieu! Time passes and Duvalier continues to curry the Nazis' favor. And to favor the Nazis' curry. I'll cut that out. During a performance one night, a German officer grabs the microphone. Gentlemen and ladies, if you will step to the windows, we have a surprise. Everyone does, as they're told. In the courtyard below, a firing squad stands ready to shoot. This is how our Gestapo deals with the resistance. A volley is fired and six Frenchmen die. The crowd, 
goes back to dancing. But Duvalier is horrified. They act as though they were killing nothing. The next morning at a cafe, the singer is stunned to see Jean and Paul's photographs on the front page of the newspaper. Gestapo seeks saboteurs. If the Nazis learn Paul is his son, Duvalier is a dead man. That night, the Germans' eyes never leave Duvalier, and he recognizes too late that he was a fool for having cast his lot with the occupiers. Packing to flee after the show, the door to his dressing room is thrown open and an SS officer strides in. Going somewhere, Duvalier? I, I can explain. There is nothing to explain. We know you are loyal, but your son and his friends have fled to safety. Someone must atone. Escorted to a staff car, Duvalier stammers, well, where are you taking me? The SS officer grins evilly to a special engagement. Much later, the setting changes. Gone are the champagne, the wealth, the laughter, replaced by the roar of death camp ovens, where Duvalier performs his final concert. The end of Duvalier. No killjoy? I'll lead off the CNC. Overall, probably the weakest art in the book, but when it's done by committee, that has to be expected. I'd never seen Cabaret the movie before I saw a traveling production of Cabaret the musical. The ending I witnessed, where the nightclub owner is last shown in death camp PJs with the pink triangle on his chest, denoting he was a homosexual, before the whole stage was engulfed in a blinding white light and the theater is filled with a roar, both signifying his ultimate fate, was something that sticks with me to this day. The last panel on page five reminds me of that scene. Duvalier wearing striped PJs, standing on a wooden crate, and singing with three similarly attired musicians playing beside him. A female prisoner looks up at him as the line snakes into the ovens, black smoke belching into the sky. Best panel in the story, and the most sobering one in the book. As I've said in previous episodes, I've, I've been to the French National Memorial to the Holocaust, fittingly mostly underground, uh, directly behind the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Over 200,000 Frenchmen vanished during the war. As a sober sidebar, I will say the U.S. lost only 291,000 killed in combat during the war. Add training accidents, illness, etc., and that number climbs to over 400,000. I'm using the one number for an obvious, deliberate reason. Never trust the occupier, Duvalier. You never know when you may become useful for a sinister secondary reason. Yeah. Yeah, lesson, lesson learned a bit too late. As for my CNC, I'll give the art a break here, as you kind of did too. Um, seeing as it was being assigned to Kubert's students as homework, they better have gotten paid, Joe. All right? <laughs> Considering that, this is actually some fine work overall, in my opinion. The opening page is particularly good. Transitioning from outdoor street slaughter to ritzy indoor entertainment and possibly showing that Joe told his students that there were no shortcuts allowed. They drew everything, especially in that big splash panel inside the club. On page two, panel one, I was immediately struck by the name Mueller as a Nazi in the story about the French occupation. I've mentioned that my wife and I watched the series Un Village Francais a while back, which was set in the same period and also featured a prominent Nazi character by the name of Heinrich Mueller. <laughs> Page two is also pretty well done overall, with the exception of the weird fish mouth on Paul in panel five and Marcel's neck and brow line making him look like he's turning into a werehorse in panel six. On page three, panel three, we get a really well done aerial view of the building and the show assembled outside. But I'm afraid the folks being shot look more like a dance troupe than the victims of a firing squad in panel three. A nitpick and a gruesome one, but I'm sorry. It kind of looked like lights on a dance floor and they were all getting down and boogieing. <laughs> Page six, panel four, we get a weirdly long neck Nazi stretching his head through a doorway. However, the final panel is, as Rich mentioned, is grim AF, as the kids say. And the story itself was well told and suitably chilling. I, I dug this one. Not bad, class. So 
Rich will take us on to the next really cool feature in this issue. We got ourselves a battle album. Mother. Two pages. Script perhaps by Robert Conagher. Art by Tom Mandrake. Just going to read you the text blocks here. Early in World War I, it was realized that an armored vehicle would be tremendously effective in collaboration with cavalry and infantry personnel. In September of 1916, the first real tank was used in warfare. Experiments had been made of tractors with high centers of gravity. Rhomboidal shape proved significantly adaptable to varieties of terrain and had the capability of putting more track on the ground. Since Mother had no turret from which to mount arms, Sponsons were fitted onto her sides to accommodate two naval six-pounder guns to be used as main armament. This vehicle changed entirely the face and form of warfare. The steel juggernaut was steered by differential bracing of the tracks. Although the speed achieved by these mechanical monsters was slow, it was capable of crossing a nine-foot trench with a four-and-a-half-foot parapet. The sight was of an advancing tank was enough to make any soldier tremble. And the two-page spread is that of British tanks leading infantry into German trenches with a third panel of a full-profile view of the tank. And if you don't think there was a killjoy in a history minute coming in, I don't know how long you've been listening to the show. The British Mark I tank was nicknamed Mother. There were two types of Mark I. Males armed with two naval six-pound guns and three machine guns, as portrayed here, and females armed with five machine guns. The Battle of Flair Cursolette, 15 to 22 September 1916, was fought during the Battle of the Somme in France and marked the first time tanks were used. 150 tanks had been ordered for the attack, but by 15 September, only 49 were ready, and only 18 contributed to the battle. Many got lost, broke down, or were bogged down in shell craters or mud. The Germans were completely unprepared for the armored behemoths bearing down on them and fled in terror. I'm carving this battle down as far as possible, by the way. In, in the end, the British advanced about two miles. The German defense had almost collapsed, and British captured 4,500 yards of the third defensive line, taking about double the amount of ground taken on July 1st, the bloody beginning of the Somme, where 19,000 fell. I've talked about that in the past episode. For about half the casualties. The Germans recovered quickly. And the British were not able to exploit the success due to ex exhaustion and disorganization. The battle was a moderately successful set piece by 1916 standards. And the British had reached a good position to attack the rest of the German third position. It wasn't until after the war when it was realized just how close the British had come. If the attack had been postponed until more tanks were available to maximize their surprise appearance, it's been theorized that there could have been a complete breakthrough. Could the war have ended in 1916? We'll never know. Or will we? All those alternate history books out there. <laughs> we could at least get an educated guess. So I'll kick off the CNC here for this awesome little feature. Spoiler alert, I dig these things. I'll say cue the one Danzig song that even all the normal people know. Mother, tell your soldiers to get out my way. <laughs> I love these battle albums in general. And this one is pretty great. For a non-obsessive military trivia lunatic, eh, like me, this is one of the major ways I learned stuff about, well, things like this. I do kind of wonder why the Mark I was given this nickname, though. Was it because that's what people said when they saw it coming? Now, let me add, as, I'm, as you're talking and I'm looking at the... Uh, the battle album again. That guy in the foreground, that's probably the guy that's saying mother right there. He's like that dude in the front of Action Comics number one that's become iconic, who's just screaming his head off and running while Superman smashes that car. Like that soldier in the foreground who's like just cowering like Gollum with his eyes bugging out. That's, he's my favorite person for the day. I don't care, like that, that's my guy right there. I love him. He needs to become an icon. But so he's the guy that's saying, mother, while the tank comes roaring over the trench. So there you go. <laughs> World War I tank battle album? Hells to the yeah. Mandrake's art is really good, though I'll admit to being partial to Sam's work on this piece. Sue me. Funny that Mother was a male, obviously. Unfortunately, the battle album in issue three 
Glansman's flying guns is the only time that feature appears in our home comics pages. Yeah, that is a tragedy. So we'll move on from that tragic point. I'll take us into the next story because it's short. So, you know, a little mercy being shown on Rich's birthday. This is one called Taps for a Bugler. It's only three pages long. Like I said, script is by, hey, guess who? Bob Conniger. Art is by Jan Dorsima. Synopsis for this little ditty goes like this. Dusk on a barren mountain in cold, freezing Korea. The Marines of Dog Company huddle around their bugler, listening to him blowing the sweetest horn this side of 125th Street in Harlem. He thinks he's just playing a bunch of sour notes, but the sudden call of a Chinese bugle signaling the start of a human wave attack makes him forget the thought. Artillery and small arms pour into the Chinese, but they don't stop. The U.S. outposts are wiped out and others man the positions. The American bugler notices that his Chinese counterpart is supplying the juice for the whole attack. The onslaught eventually subsides, and the Marines warily move out and search for enemy survivors. The American bugler discovers that the Chinese one is still alive, and is surprised when his dying peer rolls over and shakily hands him his horn. Under the light of a full moon, the American raises the horn to his lips and begins to play. Two Marines off to one side comment, Never heard taps played like that before. That's because you ain't never heard taps played for a bugler. The end. No killjoy? CNC. This is the first time in show history we've had a Korea story, amazingly enough. Shout out to my. Father-in-law, PFC Lane Myers, who served in the artillery in the 1st Cavalry Division during the war. Three pages of that fun panel-in-panel style that works so well. Boom! This story always stuck with me as a kid. It was one of the earliest examples of The Enemy Are People 2 I remember reading. Page 3, panels 3, 5, and 6 of the dying Chinese bugler handing the American bugler his horn. And then the American playing silhouetted by a full moon over the body is grade A. One thing I noticed is, is that throughout the story, you never see any sound effects for the bugle. No notes, no ta-ra, ta-ra, or anything. Are we just supposed to imagine what the horn is supposed to sound like? That might be a nicer touch. Giving the American bugler a name would have been nice, too, for my sake. But a quick little side note, it should come as a surprise to no one that I am a huge fan of the TV show MASH on a complete set of um, DVD. I was reading a book about the show recently, and there was something about the dates the show was on the air that sounded eerily familiar. So I hunted around. The pilot aired on September 17th, 1972, and the finale, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, aired to great fanfare on February 28th, 1983. The cover date of Weird War Tales number one was September October 1971, and issue 124 was released on March 1st. 1983. So the trajectories of MASH and Weird War Tales are amazingly similar. Just an FYI. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) To me, this was the weakest art in the book. It, It all looked very amateurish and stiff, and the heavy inking coupled with overly crowded panel layouts didn't help either. I agree the page layouts were pretty good. This must be some of Jan Dorsima's first work, too, because she goes on to be one of the best artists in the business, known for her superb work on countless Star Wars comics and more. Her and Tom Mandrake from the Battle Album are married to each other, by the way, and they met at the Kubert School. Who'd have thunk it? Back to the story. The sound effects are bad enough to look like I drew them. So maybe it's a blessing there were no sound effects for the bugle. And the narrative, while attempting to make a poignant point, falls flat. Get it? Bugle? Flat? Hello? This on? This one could have been left out of the issue, in my opinion. So let's move on to perhaps a happier note with the next story in the issue. Ah, please. Ah, you're killing me, man. The Men of Easy Company. Big Man. Three pages, script by Robert Conacher, 
who else? Art by Joe Kubert on page one and Jan Durzima on pages two and three. Synopsis. Bulldozer is slogging back to the front after visiting Battalion A to get a minor arm wound looked at. 30 caliber machine gun on his shoulder. A large boulder had rolled downhill and was blocking the road, and the one-star general and his aide couldn't budget. Bulldozer offers to give a hand, but the general is doubtful. You're a big man, soldier, but you've only got one good arm. The both of us couldn't even budget. Putting the 30 down, Bulldozer walks around the boulder. I've been lifting weights my whole life. There's a knack to it. Okay, soldier, but remember, you don't get a medal for a hernia. The boulder is bigger than their jeep. There's no way he'd ever move it. But incredibly, the massive rock slowly starts the move. Bulldozer strains against it and pushes it far enough off the road for the jeep to pass. The aide can't contain his amazement. If that guy had as much brains as he's got muscle, this war would be over real soon. Bulldozer glowers over his shoulder in irritation, then scoops up his 30 and opens fire as the two men hit the deck. Cripes, I didn't think he'd get that mad. The bulldozer isn't firing at the brass. His fire crisscrosses with the lead coming from a patrol of kraut headhunters roaring up the road behind him, mounted in a half-track. Bulldozer's rounds score first, and the half-track explodes. You just earned yourself a medal, soldier, the general exclaims. Put a bandage on his arm, Sergeant, we'll take him back to an aid station. Thanks, General, but Easy's waiting for me up ahead. That piece of shrapnel just scratched me. Besides, Sergeant Rock will get mad if I don't show up on time. Shouldering his smoking 30, Bulldozer continues his trek down the road. Killjoy, hate to do this, but it's my duty to call him as I see him, and there's no shortage of Killjoy in this story. Why is Bulldozer carrying around a liquid-cooled machine gun? An air-cooled 30 would be lighter, you know, like the one you were carrying in the dummy, and yet don't have an attached cooling water can with it, which isn't here. On panel one of page two, you can clearly see the 30 isn't loaded. Obviously a belt of magic invisible bullets. He just scooped that gun up and started shooting. No brass flying, nothing. And also again, as in the dummy, I hardly doubt the half-track would have exploded from his fire. Stop it by killing the crew, a riddle in the engine, sure. And to top it all off, this is my favorite, pages, page two, panels four and five. It's, it was, it's amazing. It's like there was a line drawn through the story. Every panel of Bulldozer's bandaged arm leading up to panel four shows it on his right arm. Every panel after page, panel five shows it on his left consecutive freaking panels. Come on, Chan, you did so well in taps for a bugler. That sound you hear is Robert Conagher pulling the pin on a grenade. Much like in the letter I called out for a certain reason that Rich just proved why I did that. So kicking off my C&C here, I'll say Jan Dersima's work is a lot better in this story than in the previous one for every reason. I'll take it. It's clear, better laid out, more confident looking, and effective all around, I say. Accuracy, schmaccuracy, that's Rich's department. This was a fun, charming little story that felt like the Sergeant Rock version of one of those little PSAs at the end of the G.I. Joe cartoons from the 80s. Good stuff left me with a grin on my face, and you know, that's half the battle. I like these quick solo stories about the men of easy. Four Eyes had a great one. I was always a bigger fan of his than Bulldozer. Three pages, boom. Conacher has this three-page thing on lockdown. We set the tone on page one with a Kubert-drawn rock narrating the tale. I'm rock. Easy Co's top kick. I don't know about all the other Easy Co's in the army, but I'm positive that only one Easy has a combat happy Joe Lack Bulldozer. There's a narrow full-page length panel of easy marching toward the viewer on the left-hand side that's just peachy. Just like Bugler, pages two and three have a lot of panel and panel action going on that looks great. I enjoy page two of panel six of Bulldozer looking over his shoulder with a, what the hell did you just say, Jack? Look on his face. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that three-pager was a freaking delight. I, I loved it. So <laughs> let's, let's, let's take a second to absorb how much fun that was. And then we're going to dive into our spotlighted ads for the issue, which I got to say, spoiler alert, kind of fun this time around. 
Take it away. This one was too easy. On the inside cover, we have the new Monogram Super Kits. Super scale, super size, super fun. The sizzling Turbo Trans Am, 1-8 scale, 24 and a half inches long. The biggest Trans Am kit around. The mighty Peterbilt 359, 1-16 scale, 20 inches long. No other plastic truck is this big. The gigantic B36 Peacemaker, 172 scale. A 38 and 5 sixteenths inch wingspan, the largest plastic airplane kit ever made. Monogram Models Incorporated, Morton Grove, Illinois, 60053, right down to the last detail. It's primarily a close-up photo of the Smokey and the Bandit Trans Am on the top half, and then there's an insert photo of two dudes posing with the B36 and the truck with pictures of the box kits themselves under that. I built that B36. Look at that photo. That thing is huge. I probably used a tube of cement on the wings and fuselage alone. It hung over my bed for years. It was designed during World War II with six pusher prop engines and later had a nacelle added to each wing with two jet engines in it for additional thrust. Ten engines. It was the largest bomber we ever built that never fired a shot in anger. Then there's one on display at the Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio, which I go to all the time whenever I visit the in-laws. They were phased out in favor of the B-52. Beautiful bird. Man, I must have walked under that thing so many times. <laughs> if you had that uh, that plane hanging in, the, in your room, dude. So uh, that is very cool to know. I'm, I'm going to recognize that photo, no doubt. So for my spotlighting ad, I'm taking a look at a double page splash ad for something called Road Rockets Rapid Fire Target Game. You got a, a like I said, big double page spread, hand drawn ad of some blonde kid with a very determined look on his face pulling the trigger on this dome like thing that has a rotating stock of like matchbox cars leading to a ramp. And when he pulls the trigger, they spin around and one car goes out the ramp down at this little i'm assuming cardboard target setup and when the cars hit the bad guys fly out of the back in some kind of simulated carnage it looks pretty awesome i gotta say if i was like seven years old and saw this and and i did i did see this ad and i wanted this thing really badly i, I would have demanded to have this thing but we'll get into that the text says fire away at the forces of evil and get a three dollar reward yeah, I, I know that's his $3 rebate down there, but, but fire away at the forces of evil. Hell yeah, I'll do that. New from Lakeside, Road Rockets Rapid Fire Target Game. Launch all six Road Rockets without reloading. Blast the bad guys and watch them fly. Like this thing looks so much fun. I, I, I'm betting in person it was probably a lot less impressive, but so was everything back then and we still played with it anyway. So like I said, I'm pretty sure I didn't have this game, quote unquote game, whatever. Yeah, I don't know what the rules are for this game, but although I am certain, as I said, that I really wanted it. Some people seem to be counting on cashing in on that ages old yearning, too, as this very ad, just the ad, is going for anywhere from six to 30 bucks online. I took a couple of screenshots at two different auctions. So just two pages of this comic book, someone will sell it to you for 30 bucks. What a deal. <laughs> However, I could find no trace of the actual toy. I looked all over the place and, and neither could this blogger from 2012 that I stumbled upon in my search. I have a link to it. It's a, the blog is four color promises.blogspot.com. And this, seems to be the post that killed their blog too. Like it's it's the last real post before the blogger then says, well, I guess I'm going to be wrapping this blog up. So it's the road rockets curse, people. Like <laughs> this, this, this thing maybe doesn't even exist. And if you look into it too hard, it'll shut you down. <laughs> All right? It still looks fantastic. So if anyone can find proof of this thing's existence or they owned it or you have it or whatever, send pictures in. You could solve one of the cold cases of the internet, all right? So that's our spotlighted ads for this issue. They were a lot of fun. It was hard to even just pick, but I had to go with Road Rockets because I remembered how much I wanted that thing. And then I discovered how much of a mystery it really is. All that aside, the issue's done. We're going to tell you if we had any 
last words on the subject. In one of our earliest episodes, Max said, anytime I wanted to do a rock episode, just ring the bell. Ding, ding, ding. You have no idea how hard it was to pick an issue for this episode. To be fair, this one lunged to mind immediately, but I started second-guessing myself almost as fast because there are so many great issues. Should I do the first Sergeant Rock I ever bought? Jeez, what about the Iron Major? But I grew up with Redondo Rock, and the dummy is a bit weird. Add a battle album and an Easy Company solo tale? So much awesome, I could barely stand it. Taking Twisted Sister completely out of context, all I gotta say is, I wanna rock. Goes without saying, the issue win for me is the cover story, the script writing as a whole, was done in record time. I loved this book. Again, happy birthday to yourself, Rich. Well chosen. Sure. I like the Bugler story a lot less than some other people might have, but I'd still take this issue of Sergeant Rock over tons of other single issues of any comic series out there that I've read. What I liked in this issue was so good that what I didn't like just kind of bounces off the tally. This one gets super high marks for me, and as much as I'd like to pick Sing for Your Supper as a favorite, and I, I'm, it's, I'm really torn. It's like, you've got the dummy, which is amazing, and Rich picked that. There's that solo bulldozer story that is just fantastically fun. I, I, I'm going to give an honorary to Sing for Your Supper for the sheer effort that the Kubert School put into that and how well it turned out, despite the diverse hands working on it. But really... You can't. Like, the battle album, everything, this this is a fantastic comic for anybody to read. I don't care what you're into. So, there's some last words for you. Now, that's it. That's Rich's birthday. He can shut up about his birthday now. No, just kidding. <laughs> he won't shut up. And he's not going to listen to me anyway. So... In light of all that, let's move on to the Dead Letter Office, where we take a look at social media, emails, and stuff like that from our much-valued listeners. And over on, let's see, over on uh, social media in general, Blue Sky, Facebook, and all that, we got likes and high fives and whatnot from Tim DeForest of ComicsRadioBlogspot.com, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics podcast, Aya Voss. Daniel Rapoli, Chuck Bushman, who has been super active on the Facebook page. I got to just give him a shout out because I've been getting notifications on the Weird Warriors podcast Facebook page from Chuck checking out photos and stuff like that. So, you know, just salute to you, man, for uh, really participating over on the FB page and having fun with everybody over there. We got a like from Magazines and Monsters, hosted by our buddy Billy D. Mike Sturba stopped by. Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. And Lloyd Smith over on Blue Sky calls himself Old Groove, the groovy agent. He is the founder of Blue Moon Comics online. Check all that stuff out. Check out his, his blog, everything. Lloyd Smith, the groovy agent, Blue Moon Comics. Stand-up guy, really writes some good comic book stories, and probably wrote some Weird War-type stuff, too. Not, not in the series, but as far as the subject goes. Anywho, that's social media. Over on redbubble.com, where you can search the Weird Warriors podcast and get our awesome logo drawn and designed by Bill Walco of the Hero Business and Archie Comics. It's got a Josie and the Pussycat special coming out. You can get that logo on all kinds of merchandise over there. And if you send us a picture of you with the merch, you will earn a star from a flag that once flew over Sam Glansman's home. Gras Asu Glansman and your good buddy Rich Fulham, who cares about you enough to give you something that cool. Okay? So, over on Gmail. I'm going to let Rich read this one because it, it you know, it mostly, uh, mostly is directed to him. We got a little Gmail from a good buddy of ours that I just mentioned up, up in the uh, social media bit there. Tim DeForest weighs in. I got a bit behind when you guys went back to your regular schedule, so I apologize for not writing for a while. I assume my emails are the delightful highlights of your otherwise humdrum lives, and we're lost without them. 
Anyway, I agree with Max that Rich's history minutes are excellent. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Well researched and well presented with obvious enthusiasm. I look forward to them each episode. I think Max was spot on in saying Voyage to Limbo had a gold key comics vibe to it. I'm also a huge fan of Gold Key, and this tale would have fit quite nicely into a Twilight Zone or Boris Karloff. I'm pretty sure in real life, the Flying Dutchman is now crewed by the countless writers through the years who have used the Flying Dutchman cliche in a story. No odds on that. The less than realistic of the color of the coloring of the Japanese soldiers in the first tale does stand out, but is it a case of stereotyping or simply an example of the limitations of the coloring process in ancient pre-digital times? I actually didn't killjoy that story at all because I just kind of assumed that. Another great episode. Thanks as always, Tim DeForest. Well, hey, you're welcome. And from there, we're just going to uh, move into a little additional something special for uh, in, in memoriam. Before we wrap the show, we, we'd like to pause for a moment to remember Keith Giffen, who died on October 8th, 2023 at the age of 70. This is the first show we've recorded since he passed. We told you we'd be recording these a ways out. Max introduced me to Giffen's work early on in our friendship through the antics of Ambush Bug. That was some of the funniest stuff I have still ever read in the pages of a comic book. Given generally disliked going to cons, so if you were lucky enough to get him at one, you were doing pretty well. I got him to sign three books. Ambush Bug and Lobo he saw all the time. But my gotcha was G.I. Combat 267, a seven-page story written by Bob Conagher called Death Waits 1,000 Years that he'd done the art for. He actually stopped and flipped through the book for a few seconds before signing. Check the album and you'll find the two-page mini-story in Ambush Bug, nothing special. The Screaming Socks of Easy, starring Argyle. The Lobo book was the convention special where Giffen mocked himself about how rare it is to see him at one. Rarer than X-Men number one, but left a spot for his signature on the odd chance you were successful. I was. Giffen went out like a boss. His last Facebook post read, I told him I was sick. Anything not to go to New York Comic Con. Thanks, Keith Gibbon, 1952-2023. Thanks for everything, Keith. You were the best. He did work at a couple of our Intel reports, Common Foe and Grunts, and in WWT issue 124, the very last one, a two-pager called The Window. It's just like Keith to be waiting for us at the end, like the time trapper at the end of time in the Legion of Superheroes. I got to say, Keith Giffen was a creator I got hooked on early from his Kirby clone work in the issues of Defenders that I grabbed up in garage sales when I was a kid to his epic run with Paul Levitz on one of my all-time favorite series, the Legion of Superheroes. That's why I just mentioned the time trapper. (laughs) Not to mention his later work, on his own controversial, but perhaps equally incredible and certainly innovative five years later take on the same series later on. I didn't always agree with Giffen's creative decisions. Karate Kid, no! Block, no! But I was always entertained by them. Everything I read by Giffen was compelling and cool. Okay, maybe not Video Jack, but the aforementioned masterwork that is every single ambush bug story, miniseries, and nothing special, to the underappreciated heckler, to his image books like Trencher and stuff for Boom like Hero Squared, and, and really just about everything I ever got my grimy hands and squinty peepers on. Giffen just couldn't hardly ever miss for me. Reading his interviews and hearing the stories about him over the years, he was the curmudgeon's curmudgeon, one of the reasons I like him, but he was also, he also loved and understood the medium of comic books enough to challenge it and even break it when it needed breaking. He wasn't as bombastic a figure as Jack Kirby or Stan Lee, but he may have been in his own way just as important. And he would hate that I said that and call me stupid. (laughs) Sharing the joy of Ambush Bug with Rich is one of the great comic book related joys of my career. That story in DC Comics Presents, where he swaps bodies with Superman alone. I can't see! Keith Giffen, 
I, I don't even know. I, I don't even know what we'll do without you. Huge hole in in comic books in general. So raise a glass, whatever you want to do. Weaponize an Argyle sock. Send send a, a a toy into war. Send a stuffed you know a stuffed Cupid doll into combat. Do something in honor of Keith Giffen. Okay. And after you're all done with that, we'll let Rich cue you up with, hey, a teaser for our next episode. Weird War Tales 49. Almost there. The Last Shot. Mutant Massacre. Killer tunes, man. And a story of reenacted valor. That alone should bring you back. Tune in. And if you do, you'll tune in and hear us. You know who we are. We're the Batman Bros. We're the Weird Warriors. We're the Combat Happy Joes. And we promise to make war. No more. Move out.